Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Bruce Carter. Bruce is the chairman of the board at the New York-based TB Alliance. He's something of a senior statesman of the industry, known for his run as CEO of Seattle-based Zymogenetics and for serving on a variety of boards. He's the chairman of the board at Watertown, Massachusetts-based Ananta Pharmaceuticals, which is the developer of protease inhibitors for hepatitis C, which are key components of a very effective HCV cocktail marketed by AbbVie. But I didn't ask Bruce on the show to talk about hepatitis C. In this conversation, I wanted to ask him about an important new development against another big infectious scourge, tuberculosis. The TB Alliance, with pretty limited fanfare, has grown up with a nonprofit drug development model. It has taken straight aim at the market's failure to develop new treatments for TB, this common and deadly disease in the developing world. This is a conversation worth having. The TB Alliance provides an interesting case study in how good things can happen when governments, philanthropists, regulators, and industry all chip in for a common cause. None of these entities could or would make a difference for TB if they tried to operate in isolation. But they can make a difference if they each chip in something, if they're willing to be flexible and take on a fair bit of risk. I think this could be a model for other aspiring nonprofit drug developers to follow. Now, before we start this episode, a couple quick things. Do you enjoy this podcast? Your organization can support it through a sponsorship. The audience for this show has tripled in the past year, and it's composed of a lot of movers and shakers in the innovative side of biopharmaceuticals. Do you want to get your name out in front of these influential people? Let's talk. Luke at TimmermanReport.com. The other thing you can do is purchase an annual subscription to Timmerman Report. It's $149 a year for an individual subscriber. Companies and universities with multiple readers can purchase a license for internal sharing at a 10% discount. And when you do that, you'll be able to read my writing plus in-depth reports from savvy contributing writers like Stacey Lawrence, Asher Mullard, Alex Harding, Leora Schiff, and more. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe to get yours today. Now, please join me and Bruce Carter on the long run. Okay, so with me today is uh, Bruce Carter. He's the chairman of the board of the TB Alliance. Welcome to the long run, Bruce. Thank you, Luke. It's nice to see you again. So listeners should probably know, uh, Bruce and I go way back. Uh, I, uh, when I was just getting started as a reporter at the Seattle Times covering biotech in the early 2000s, Bruce was the CEO of Zymogenetics. And this was one of the first generation important biotech companies in Seattle. Uh, and he was taking it independent and taking it public. Uh, and uh, Bruce was quite patient uh, with uh, this young reporter in helping me learn the ropes. And I've always enjoyed interviewing you, Bruce. Uh, so uh, thank you for that. No, thank you, Luke. You didn't need much help. 
Well, I, I thought to invite you in today uh, because I saw this really important piece of news the other day out of the FDA that there was an approval of a new drug for multidrug resistant and extensively drug resistant tuberculosis. And you are the chairman of the board of the TB Alliance, as I said, uh, happened to be right here in my hometown of Seattle. So I thought there's a lot of issues around TB drug development, this highly prevalent infectious disease. Uh, let's talk. <laughs> so uh, thank you for coming in today. No, it's, it's quite right. Actually, the approval is for extensively drug-resistant TB and for multiple drug-resistant, which is uh, where the patients are either don't respond to the drugs or they are uh, intolerant of the drugs. So the indication is not for all multiple drug resistance. Okay, we'll get into what the label says, I think, as we go on here. But, um, I mean, for those who do not follow the TB story on a day-to-day -day basis, and that being most people, uh, this, of course, is this uh, infectious disease that affects over a billion people, I think, in latent forms mostly, uh, kills uh, a million people a year. Uh, kills about 1.8 million people a year. So this is one of the big global health threats. It's the top priority of the Gates Foundation. It's a bacterial infection. It's airborne, so that's part of the issue. Like you cough and you can spread it to other people. Uh, it's part of what makes global health authorities worried about its spread and, and its, uh, its, its lethality. Uh, not a market for this. Pharmaceutical industry just uh, can't or won't um, take drugs all the way through. Uh, they're just not set up for that. So this creates a need for something like the TB Alliance. So can you tell me a little bit about the TB Alliance for starters? Like, how did this thing get going? Sure. There was a, a meeting in South Africa in the year 2000. There were probably 120 people at that meeting. They were representatives of the pharmaceutical industry. There were non-government agencies. Uh, there were um, um, philanthropists. And the general feeling was, look, there hasn't been a new drug for TB for, for decades. Furthermore, there are no drugs in clinical development for TB. It's time something was done about it. And so the TB Alliance was formed. Its full title is the Global Alliance for TB Drug Development. And the idea was that some of the pharmaceutical companies would do research in tuberculosis. They would not do the development because the development is extremely expensive and there's no real return for them. And the idea was that the TB Alliance would then develop the drugs and find, through philanthropy, the financial wherewithal to do it. And uh, it was initially set up by, uh, the CEO was Marie Ferrer, and we had support from the Gates Foundation. But really now what's happened is a convergence of, of perhaps four different events. First was um, the fact that a number of pharmaceutical companies really began to do research on TB, even though they left the field. We have GSK doing research in Spain. We had Novartis doing research in Singapore. We had AstraZeneca doing research in Bangalore. We had Lilly doing research, Sanofi doing research, a number of companies. And this is all not coordinated, right? And largely, you know, behind closed doors. Correct. So now we have a pipeline of, of research possibilities. Then we were able to get funding from uh, the Gates Foundation, 
We get major funding from the UK international aid development. We get money from the Australian government, from the German government. There's an Indonesia health fund, which is one of the high burden countries for TB. Australia. Um, so, this, so the second thing was we had the financial wherewithal. The third thing is we got a lot of help from the FDA um, because they were very anxious for the development of TB drugs because they saw the need. The difficulty before the FDA became involved was for drug-sensitive TB, you need to give a patient four drugs for six months. And you can imagine if you've got four drugs, let's call them A, B, C, D, and you want to change the drugs from A, B, C, D to A, B, X, Y, you've got to do a lot of clinical testing on X before you can substitute it in, and a lot of clinical testing on Y before you can sub that in. But the FDA made it easier so that we could actually develop regimens in parallel rather than in sequence. Okay. In other words it meant that we would have new TB drugs in my lifetime as opposed to not in my lifetime. And, and then, of course, once you've tested those components, uh, you do need to test the whole combination versus the standard of care, uh, and hopefully not in 10,000 people, which might make it cost prohibitive, but in some kind of way that a nonprofit entity like you describe can feasibly do this. That's correct. One, one thing that helped us was so-called GAIN, which was generating antibiotic incentives now. And although we don't benefit completely from that, because one of the incentives is it gives you five years additional exclusivity. And since Pritominid is a generic drug, there's no exclusivity anyway. But it meant that we got priority review. Then there's another... Um, aspect from the FDA. It's a limited population pathway for antimicrobial and antifungal drugs. This is for serious sort of antibacterial or antifungal diseases that are, are life-threatening. They're a very limited population and there's an unmet need. This meant that we could test in, as we did, in just over 100 patients and it meant that we could compare to historical best of care, which made the pathway much easier for us, rather than two clinical trials of perhaps a thousand people in each. Okay. Well, I want to come back to some of these regulatory tools because these are very important. Uh, there's good reason for those policies, uh, the, the limited population, and for one in particular with antibiotics, because as you know, like overprescribing of antibiotics is part of the problem that's led to resistance. And so the agency wants to approve new antibiotics, but they don't want people to use them recklessly. Uh, they want to be used in, in exactly the place where they're, Correct. They're, they're most useful. Okay, so we'll get to that in a second. But let's rewind here. Now, the, the predominant, the compound itself, uh, where did this come from? And what were people thinking that, uh, that it might have potential against this XDRTB? Um, I'm not sure initially people thought it was going to be potential with XDRTB. But basically what the TB Alliance was took a number of antibacterial drugs and tested them in mice to see if they were effective against um, TB. And um, a lot of the work has been done at John Hopkins University. And when you have a number of drugs and you're trying them in a number of combinations, there are a lot of combinations possible because the 
pictorial process. And in that way, we actually identified protominid as one of the most effective drugs in our armamentarium. Now, just structurally here, how this works, the TB Alliance is a bunch of uh, former pharmaceutical executives or people who are sort of like virtual drug developers who oversee CROs or partner uh, scientific uh, wet lab people. Is that how this works? So most of the people at the um, TB Alliance are people who have previously worked successfully in the pharmaceutical industry. And they are people who, look, I'm successful. Now I'd like to use my experience to do something for people who really don't have anyone helping them at the moment. So there's a terrific spirit in the organization. We manage everything there. We, there are only 50 people. So uh, we manage everything, but um, we're coordinating. So it's, it's virtual, but we're doing the management. I see. And you have this network of partners in the pharmaceutical industry and uh, in academia. To, Correct. To help, uh, who, who already have the infrastructure with things like wet lab and, and the equipment. Correct. Okay. So back to Pratominid. Um what was uh, what, what compelled the TB Alliance to in licenses, or was this some sort of like garage sale, like pharmaceutical company getting out of antibiotics, and they, they said, "Here, you guys can can take this and run with it." I can't actually recall how we first identified predominant. I think it was just you know a survey of what are the potential the potentially useful drugs. Um, because we're scanning the universe all the time looking for, for opportunities. And of course, that's how we identified I mean, bedaquiline was, was the known drug. And it was through conversations with Johnson & Johnson that enabled us. They were generous enough to allow us to use bedaquiline. And, and I'm not familiar with that one. What is that? Well, the regimen that we have approved is a, we have basically the approval is for pretominid in association with bedaquiline and linozolid. Um, linozolid is the generic form. It used to be Pfizer's Zyvox, which correct. was a big-selling antibiotic years, years ago. Correct. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we have found is that the pharmaceutical industry has been very good. You know, we also have lice, we also have been able to use moxifloxacin. We got that from Bayer in, I think, around 2003, 2004, where Arthur Higgins was the head of healthcare. And moxifloxacin was a billion-dollar-a-year drug. And he, of course, would be nervous if we took this drug and treated people in India at a fraction of the price he was selling it for, and it got parallel imported back into the West. But Arthur, bless his heart, allowed us to use moxifloxacin. And we found that to be generally the case, that people are trying to do good. Well, there's not only that risk, but uh, what if, uh, you know, you see some adverse reaction in this population that, uh, geez, kind of blow back and, and hurt the, the drug? That is absolutely true because, you know, moxifloxacin is normally given for a two, or, two or three weeks and we were planning to give it for six months. And so obviously side effects could turn up after six months that you hadn't seen in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, what about TB? makes this challenging scientifically. Uh, you know, it's, it's a bacterial bug. Um, it's, as I said, uh, latent 
often. It just kind of hangs out. And we think the immune system is keeping it in check, mostly, not causing symptoms, until one day <laughs> symptoms appear and, and you got big problems. Um, so how, how, does, how do you think about developing an effective uh, regimen for this? Well, TB, we'd all forgotten about TB, I think, but it was really when HIV AIDS came about, the immune system was, um, was compromised that we began to see TB really shoot up again. And now, in fact, TB is the biggest infectious killer in the world. Um, it, is, uh, it is a problem because it's a, it's a very slow-growing bacteria. It's not like E. coli, which replicates every 20 minutes. It takes more or less a day to replicate. So one of the problems is diagnosis. Um, and another problem is, you know, the cell wall is, is, is difficult to, to enter. It just, just seems to be a tough problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do, um, how, how did you end up getting involved? Well, when, the, when Maria Frere was there, she asked me one day, would I be interested in joining the board of the TB Alliance? And at the time, I was thinking, where could I use my experience to actually be of benefit in a non-profit organization that was trying to help people? And my mother, when she was 14, had three sisters. My mother, when she was 15, had no sisters. All three sisters, in the space of one year, had died of tuberculosis. And it was only really when I joined the Alliance that I thought, gosh, my mother must have sat up night after night thinking, you know, I'm next. So when Marie asked me, I thought, this is what I should do. And you've been on the board now for how many years? Well, uh, I wouldn't. Really, more than a decade. Uh-huh. More than a decade. And so you've seen this story play out. I mean, it's, it takes this long to develop new drugs. We know. Uh, so, so let's rewind. You got the, some encouraging signals from those mice studies, from uh, the pharmaceutical partners, and then, then what happened? Well, then we, we basically have to sort of get agreement from the... the from, from the companies that we can use their drugs. Um, and, and then we have to figure out which we think are the, best, are the best combinations, and then we put them in clinical trials. And it's difficult because, you know, as you know and I know, it's difficult to develop drugs. It's difficult to develop drugs if you're doing everything yourself. It's even more difficult if you're relying on lots of other people as well. It's even more difficult if you're dealing in countries, which is where the TB burden is, that are not really used to doing clinical trials of sort of FDA type. And it's even more difficult if you're dealing in countries that have not done TB trials. So getting this all organized is, is pretty difficult. But, and it's taken us several years to get a you know, very reliable clinical sites in various parts of the world. And you're also building the infrastructure for this, right? I mean, the, absolutely. The institute. I mean, the the structure here. It's a nonprofit, so you're receiving government grants, as you said. It's also able to receive philanthropy, uh, but 
you know, not unlimited amounts and not forever amounts right. of money. So how, how much money did you think you needed to like run the kind of rigorous trials that you might need to do? I think we didn't, an important, an important success factor in any innovation, I think is a bit of ignorance, naivety, because you start on doing things that you think I won't be able to, you don't realize I can't do that. So if we had realized this was going to cost us $50 million, $55 million every year, I think we would have thought, well, we can't do that. We can't find that money. But somehow or other, we have. Is that what it cost? It's, we, our budget is $55 million a year. And it's, of course, it's not just on this one program. You have other programs in the pipeline. Correct. Correct. And we have other clinical trials in the pipeline. Wow. Okay. So... Tell me a little bit about Pretominid. Like, when did this thing start to show some promise and, and uh, capture more of the interest at the board level? I would think t- t- maybe three years ago. We'd always been interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was when we started the clinical trial and we, got, we started getting striking results. I mean, <laughs> it's almost a miracle. Um, previously, XDR treatment was like six drugs, including injections for a period of time, and you would get maybe a cure rate of 30%. We're seeing a cure rate of 90%. So I think that when we started to see the initial results, we were, I think we were shocked. The previous regimen was six drugs, and it could sometimes stretch out to 12 or 18 months, right? 20 months. 20 months, six drugs... Uh, now we're talking about a regimen with three drugs Correct. and six months. Correct. And these are oral small molecules? Correct. These so are pills. Th- these are, this is a more practical regimen, and this is very important when you're thinking about wide access. The previous regimen meant that a patient in the course of those 20 months took 14,000 pills and injections. And you can't miss them. <laughs> Right. And you can't miss them. <laughs> um, wow. And so you run this, this first clinical trial, and I believe it was in South Africa, right? How did that come to be? Well, you basically do the clinical trials where the patients are. And South Africa is one of the high-burden countries. The high-burden countries are, would be places. In terms of the absolute number, India is the highest. I, I don't think it's the highest in per capita of the population. Um, Indonesia is a problem, South Africa is a big problem, Swaziland and other African countries are a problem. Brazil is a problem. Russia is a very important problem as well. Yeah, this this is truly global. And Russians who realize they have no future in Russia and come out through Turkey to the West are a problem. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, people can get on planes and go anywhere too. Absolutely. Do you like listening to this podcast? You can show your support in two meaningful ways. One, you can sponsor the long run and reach about 4,000 biotech leaders in an immersive listening experience every other week. Another simple alternative is to subscribe to Timmerman Report. Go to timmermanreport.com slash subscribe. And if you're interested in getting a group sharing license, you can email me for the details. Luke at TimmermanReport.com.
South Africa is a good place because there's, as you say, a high burden of disease there. Uh, you can presumably find some clinical partners Correct. who can conduct a trial to, was it, were Correct. you thinking about FDA standards right away or, or EMA as well? Absolutely. And we've also submitted, I think we submitted in March, I may be wrong about that, but we've submitted to the EMA as well. Uh, we submitted to uh, the FDA in December and got approved in August. The EMA was in March. And of course, now we have to get approval. Well, the, f the next thing after the EMA or concurrent with that is now we have to get the treatment regimen on the guidelines of the WHO. That's a critical step. And once that's the case, we hope to get approval in all the high burden countries so that it can go out to the high burden countries. But the WHO is another important next step because their guidelines for the treatment of TB are what all these countries will follow. So these are, these are crucial steps in, in validation, so to speak, and then we'll talk about price in a minute, but uh, a key component to wider access. But let's talk about the data here. 90% uh, response rate. Correct. So these are people who... Uh, we run a blood test after six months and we can no longer see any of the bacterium circulating in the blood? Or how, how is that measured? So you treat them for six months and then after a subsequent six months, you test their sputum and see if it's uh, bacterial-free. Got it. So and the they're bacterial-free. In the lungs. And that's often where TB's worst symptoms manifest. You, you get the, Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So these people, are, you're not seeing it in the sputum anymore. I mean, are they, they're living back to their normal lives? Correct. And this was done in a very well-controlled patient population of just 109 patients, I believe. Correct. With XDR, extensively drug-resistant TB. So these patients had previously uh, not responded to a regimen? Correct. Or, well... Let me make sure. These were XDR patients, plus they were patients that had either failed MDR treatment or were intolerant of MDR treatment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And as we said earlier, this development of, of drug resistance, I mean, is a problem across all kinds of antibiotics and bacterial infections, TB just being one of them. Uh, so that's part of the real need. Yeah, if you think about it, I mean, everyone is now worried about um, resistance to antimicrobial drugs. I mean, I think I think the head of the CDC and certainly the chief medical officer in Britain said it's a much bigger threat than terrorism. And one in four people who die from antimicrobial resistance to drugs are for TB. 25% of those deaths are TB. Now, you had mentioned earlier the regulatory authorities and the role that they played. Now, I want to come to this now because what you described there with 109 patients, and this was randomized between your new regimen and the old one, and you're seeing... No, no. Or, or, or no, it was, it was a single arm. Yes. Single arm. Oh, but with historical control. Yeah. And that's, oh. that's one of the benefits we got from falling under the... FDA limited population pathway for antibacterial and antifungal drugs. 
So there were a couple things. There was the GAIN Act, Generating Antibiotic Incentives Now, I think, 2012 right. Act of Congress. <laughs> and this was at a time when a lot of the pharmaceutical industry was bailing out of antibiotic R&D and people in the public health community were very worried, like, well, what's going to happen to our pipeline? Uh, and so the FDA got involved there to try to do some things to speed things up Correct. in regulatory pathways, to make things a little more practical, do things like historical controls rather than impossible 10,000 patient randomized studies. Uh, how, did this, how did this help you? How was the FDA to work with as a partner? Well, the FDA helped us because they were very, um, we had frequent interactions. They encouraged interactions. They, to some extent, held our hand. They were, you know, very good. And then, you know, the other really important thing is something I mentioned earlier, which was, which was where um, instead of having to develop regimens in complete sequence, so you had to go A, B, C, D to A, B, C, X to then A, B, C, X, Y, which meant that you'd be decades before you could find a drug, the FDA, and this was really in conjunction with a number of the pharmaceutical industries, the Gates Foundation were very involved in this and the TB Alliance, and, and they reached agreement with the FDA that this was going to be the way that you could develop TB drugs. In other words, you could develop regimens instead of drugs. Okay. Now, to play devil's advocate, a hardcore biostatistician or medical evidence person listening might say, well, gee, I mean, it, it, this isn't gold standard medical evidence. Uh, how do we really know that this new regimen is, is that much better? And to that, you'd say, what? I mean, the 90% response rate compared with 30% historical control, the, the gap is just so wide, it's unmistakable? Yes, <laughs> Apparently, the regulatory authorities agree. Yes. Um, okay. Now, there was another piece here, the limited population. I didn't get the acronym here, but this is part of the 21st Century Cures Act. Another piece of policymaking to create incentives for this kind of drug development. Uh, and that is, as best I can tell, is this what kind of confines the patient population to the various MDR and XDR groups so that this will not be prescribed, you know, widely for, for every case of potential TB that walks in the doctor's office? It has to be a limited population. Actually, this is only the second drug that has actually been um, approved under the limited population. Um, and I don't recall what the other one was at the moment. Um, so it's a very small population. Um, if we're looking at XDRTB, we're talking about 20,000 people here. Mm -hmm. Worldwide? Yes. Well, when I say that, it's not very well known how many there are. You know, there's at least that number. But it's a very limited population. Okay. So <clears throat> now what? You got your the FDA approval... Uh, you're working through the, the WHO qualification, as you say. Somebody needs to manufacture this right. drug and distribute it. Right. And um, I guess get paid a little something. Right. How, right. how are you thinking about these questions? So we have... Um, these are very important because the point of the TB Alliance is... You know, if you develop a drug and it's not getting used, either because 
you can't get it to the patient or because the patient can't afford it, then there's little point. We actually have licensed to Mylan. In the developed world, Mylan have an exclusive license, but in the developing world, they have an exclusive license that I think it's 20 months after approval, it transforms into a non-exclusive license. And the whole point of a non-exclusive license is to give you some leverage about cost. Um, Myland are committed to making this uh, affordable. They've been terrific partners. They were interested in a previous drug that we had and actually licensed that and paid us some money for it. And it failed to show the results we had. And instead of Myland walking away, they stuck with us. They've been terrific partners. Okay. So are are they the ones that will set the price? Or, or will this be done in collaboration with TB Alliance? Well, we, we will definitely be having discussions with them. Um, but at the end of the day, of course, it is Mylan. And um, the TB Alliance, through the non-exclusivity, has some, some ability to influence that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you know, I'm on the board of a generic drug company. Dr. Reddy's? Dr. Reddy's. And as you know, you know, the first person who comes up with a generic drug can get quite a good price. But by the time there are two or three players on the market, the drug prices come down. I think in this country, the use of generic drugs has saved, uh, saved the healthcare costs in this country by several trillion dollars in the last decade because of generic drugs. Oh, without generics, um, we would be in a lot worse trouble than we are uh, with our health system. But um, now this is an oral small molecule. It shouldn't be that expensive to manufacture, unlike a biologic. Uh, it's, it's, it's been generic, predominant for a long time. So um, it, we're, we're at least talking in the same kind of ballpark where like African governments, Russian government, whoever needs it, you know, can at least have conversations with Mylan. Yes, yes. So, I mean, I can't go into it too much because nothing, you know, we're, we're having discussions right now. And, um, but in fact, really, I think the only thing I can say is, you know, we, we want this to be affordable and adoptable. Um, now, how does this work for TB Alliance as an entity to remain sustainable? I mean, you mentioned government funding and philanthropy, but um, and I'm sure that's an ongoing source of support. But um, at the same time, I mean, you did take, you spent a lot of everybody's money, you took a lot of risk, and I think most people would say there ought to be at least some kind of reward. Was there anything built into this? Like, perhaps a priority review voucher that we've heard about for qualified infectious disease programs. The FDA can give you this voucher, which you can then flip to a pharmaceutical company that wants six more months of marketing its next Lipitor. Right, right. Um, so that you can continue to do more and more programs like this. So you can put $100 million in your pocket and, like off of some sale like that to reward you for your work and then go back and do the next 
TB drug. Yeah, clearly the priority review process is set in place by by the, the government in order to incent people to work on diseases that they otherwise wouldn't feel were commercially viable. Uh, and we do have a priority review. One of the things, as you can imagine, that we're concerned about is that everyone will say to us, well, now you have a priority review voucher, you can sell that, and we don't have to worry about you anymore, which would be a disaster for the TB Alliance. Oh, the, the philanthropists. Yes, it would be a disaster for us. But you guys are and, now self-sustaining, so we don't need to give you money. And we won't be. I mean, <laughs> actually, the priority review prices come down from what it used to be because of supply and demand. But it's very important that we we keep that money for rainy days. If we just sort of put that into a general fund, the other funders will say, we you don't need us anymore. And that would be a calamity for us. Because we have clinical trials ongoing now where we're not just, we're not dealing with extensively drug resistance. We want to deal with multiple drug resistance. And we want to shorten 83% of the people who have drug-sensitive TB can be cured. But they have to take drugs still for six months, four drugs for six months. And you know what it's like when you're given an antibiotic. You feel better after a week, you stop taking the antibiotic. Mm -hmm. That's how you get multiply drug-resistant TB. So clearly an aim on drug-sensitive TB to stop it becoming multiply drug-resistant is to shorten the period of time to cure for drug-sensitive. So we're working on all these things. And they don't get any less expensive. Well, and conceptually, I mean, this is all a lot of infectious disease fields work. I mean, look at Gilead Sciences with uh, hepatitis C and HIV. There's a, a progression of making its regimens uh, shorter and easier to take, more practical. It's been a big part of their Or you could talk about my other company, Ananto, which has actually shortened with AbbVie the hepatitis C treatment to eight weeks and actually taking the market away from Gilead. Yes, yes, your competitors. <laughs> okay, so... Um, I had to say that to my friends at Nanta. Yes, yes, I know them too. Um, so, how... Um, this next year sounds like it's going to be really important for the TB Alliance to, to get this right, to get the widest access possible so that you can... Um, maintain some of the momentum that you got off of an FDA approval, apply it to your pipeline, and, and keep this whole thing financially sustainable? It's at an exciting and a sort of scary time. And um, I was just discussing yesterday the agenda for the next TB meeting. And uh, quite often when you're going to board meetings, it's more or less the same agenda time after time. This time it was completely different. All our other ones have been dealing with R&D. This one is dealing with how do we deal with the WHO and get on the guidelines? How do we deal with country by country this? How do we deal with things like price? It's all, it's all changed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does TB Alliance receive a royalty on the price from, from Mylan? We do actually get a very small royalty, um, but it's, it's fairly minuscule. Um, we're interested in sustaining ourselves. It's not a sort of, by any means, it's a non-profit organization. Um, and actually it's so small, I can't even remember what it is. Well, it's, it, you, you haven't solved all of TB, <laughs> clearly. Correct. This is a place to start. Correct. And 
uh, there's a lot more to do. Uh, are the pharmaceutical companies, uh, I mean, I guess your partners were probably pretty happy to see that approval um, as well. Are, are, has Does this affect their ability or interest to engage now that they've seen, okay, you actually got one of these over the finish line. Maybe we got some other things on the shelf that you guys can pick up and, and work on. Well, I think when you see something that's front page news on the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, it is something that people will see as important. And while I agree with what you say, you know, XDR is not the, the, the end. Do you remember about three or four years ago, maybe it was six years ago, there was this gentleman flying around the country and they thought he had XDR-TB. It was on all the news, all the television papers. And yeah. It shows, it, I think it demonstrated how frightening XDR to, can be if it got out of control. So it's very important that we have a way to, to do that. Well, even further back, I remember one of the players for the Seattle Mariners, I think might have been from Latin America, the Dominican Republic or something like that, went home uh, and they thought came back with one of these XDRTB. And suddenly, like, everybody in the clubhouse, everybody that interacts with them is like, what's going on here? Well, uh, I mean, Jesus, I mean, if you think about what TB was like, well, in my mother's time um, and, and, and later, um, how important it was. I mean, sometimes I think, you know, when when the subcontinent was split into India and Pakistan because Jinnah wanted a Pakistan, a Muslim country, but he was a very moderate Muslim. And almost six months later, he died of TB. It would, interesting how history would have changed if Jinnah had lived. <laughs> really interesting, Bruce. I, what um, lesson do you think you were taking from this experience as an organization. Is there is there something about the way you've structured this as a nonprofit development organization that's, I don't know, generalizable to others who are thinking about development along these lines? Uh, you, uh, you, of course, know about the Bill Melinda Gates Foundation. They've uh, prioritized this for many years. And then they just a couple years ago, they came out with their own medical research institute, which is supposedly like, dedicated to actually doing the development, kind of like this, I think, doing the development itself, where they don't think the partners are going to or, or have the interest. Uh, but there aren't a lot of examples where a nonprofit entity actually developed a drug all the way through to FDA approval. Um, so it, what's, what are some of the learnings, I guess, that, that others might be able to take? Um, I think I think what you just say, say is true. I mean, it is in, it has been an incremental process, and and doing TB drugs, as I mentioned, in in Africa or India, to the requisite standard, you had to learn to develop the infrastructure. is very very complicated. Um, the, the most important lesson is to get a CEO like Mel Spiegelman, and Mel has done an absolutely fantastic job not just of the science, he's a doctor, not just of the development, but he's had to keep all the various parties involved. We had a tripartite deal between Myland, Johnson & Johnson, and the TB Alliance, and you've had enough experience to see how difficult bipart deals are, but when you've got a three-part deal and you're asking someone to let you use their drug, it's extremely difficult. So Mel has not only done everything else well, but he's been 
a supreme diplomat. And he's also been there for a long time, not just a five-year stint as CEO. He was the chief scientist for some time, and one of the best decisions I ever made in my career was when I was chairman appointing him as the CEO. Huh. Uh-huh. So he started as a CSO and then became the CEO. So he has the institutional knowledge. Absolutely. And around the table. Yeah. Uh, and presumably like, has brought in his team over the years, and, and they have that same kind of working knowledge of, of the space. It's not a lot of people who have been there for turnover after a year or two. There's very little turnover. And although he's got his own team, but when we say his own team, he's, he's picked people. He hasn't sort of said, okay, from his old job, bring all these people in. We've just taken people from all the best from wherever. Mm-hmm. It's not a mates, sort of bring on your mates thing. I think this is fascinating stuff, Bruce, for people to think about in the pharmaceutical and biotech industry. As they come back to something you said earlier about people working for a long time on certain things in a company and then deciding one day that they want to do something for neglected diseases, for for a whole bunch of people in need um, who who are just not getting help for one reason or another. And, uh, you know, it's nice to see one of these things actually working yeah and, and that it is and I, I think one of the lessons I've learned is there are a lot of people who who actually are trying to do good I think you know Paul Stoffels at um, Johnson and Johnson has really been fantastic helping us with Dacolin as I mentioned earlier Arthur at, um, at Bayer uh, Sue Kin in the UK international development has been absolutely fantastic and of course Bill Gates is really trying to do good yeah, it's uh, it's easier said than done, though. Like getting the the structure right, getting the people right, the problem, the uh, articulating the problem, the science. I haven't talked about that. The, the science is hard enough in a lot of these areas. Uh, so kudos to the TV Alliance for for making this happen, and I'm really hopeful to see uh, you know this get widely distributed uh, in the years ahead. Yeah, me too. Thank you very much for joining me on The Long Run today, Bruce. It's good to see you again. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.